David Oakes here. Before we get going with my latest episode of Trees of Crowd with vet TV presenter and all-round insect-obsessed Dr Jess French, there's been a very exciting development in the Trees of Crowd Rizatron. I can't tell you exactly what it is as yet, as it's not been formally announced, but coming up in early October, you'll have the chance to come and listen to a very special live public recording of Trees of Crowd. I would suggest that giving us a follow on Twitter, Trees of Crowd Pod, will be the quickest way to find out the appropriate details when we are allowed to release them. Until then, this is Dr Jess French. These are her mini-beasts, and this is Trees of Crowd. In the depth of the forest, an old oak the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches the ivy her mantle threw when the forest boughs were bare. Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh, the oak and the ivy, oh. Hello, I'm David Oakes and welcome to Trees A Crowd. This is a podcast for those of you who, like me, think our natural world is incredible. Including cooks in the kitchen, stewing mosses or lichen. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm going to get to talk with people dedicated to or inspired by our natural world. In this episode, I'm in Partridge Country. I've come to Norwich, the only city that contains part of a national park, all to talk to Dr. Jess French. Jess works as a vet in Norfolk two days a week, as a mother seven days a week. She's a presenter on CBeebies, fronting her own programme, Mini Beast, which is a series aimed at preschoolers to encourage them to explore the local environments. She's recently published uh, a book called How to Help a Hedgehog and Protect a Polar Bear, as long, along with many other books. There's seemingly nothing that she cannot do. And now you're on Trees of Crowd. Hello, Jess. Hello. I sort of went a bit off piece there in that introduction. I hope we're not about to find out that the one thing I cannot do is podcast. Ah, well, well, you're a presenter. You're you're my first presenter. Oh, I, okay. So I'm sort of I'm, I do this as a hobby, and you've you've done it as a professional living. Well, not on a microphone, and I'm not really a professional presenter. I just was someone who loved bugs that they shoved in front of a camera. To be did excited ever, about bugs. Did you ever say in the matter? How did they know that this woman would like bugs? Um, I worked for a little while. Um, so I did a zoology degree. And then after that, I decided I wanted to work in wildlife film. Mm-hmm. And I thought my route would be sort of cameras. Um, I wanted to do film. But it just didn't really happen. I tried and it was a very difficult market to break into. Um, just oversubscribed, oversaturated? I think that, and also I hadn't started early enough. Like, the people who were doing it had been doing it since they were about 10. Sure. I don't know if it was a true representation, but I felt like it was very much a male-dominated market. Um, well, certainly the people I watched growing up were David Bellamy, Terry Nutkins, Chris Packham. Yeah. Attenborough, obviously. No, but I mean behind the behind the cameras. Oh, okay. So you're talking about producing this content, right? Producing or presenting. filming. Filming was what oh, okay. I really wanted to do. Anyway, I ended up working a little bit in in wildlife film, but as an animal handler, mm-hmm. um, because my dad breeds all kinds of weird and wonderful creatures. As we are going to find out. He's about out. to interrupt at some point. <laughs> I'm I'm a little intimidated. The conversation you had as I arrived discussing what creatures he was going to bring in. I mean, I don't mind insects. I mean, I quite like some of them. Oh, I had... are you scared? No. You look I like d- you might be a little bit scared. <laughs> <laughs> so I had stick insects as a kid. Okay. Um, but, I mean, they're the, the tamest, least offensive insect of all insects, with the possible exception of a woodlouse. Woodlouse is not an insect, but yeah. There you go. <laughs> well, what's a woodlouse? 
a crustacean. Oh, of course they are. They so okay, great. So do they Day's count? School day. <laughs> <laughs> do they count as a mini beast then? What's the definition? Yes, of your... and that's so. That is why I bandy about the word mini beast so much, because insects is not wide enough. There's you know there's arachnids, there's crustaceans. Well, there's all sorts of things. Mini beast is a word hated by many sciencey people mm-hmm. um, because it's not a taxonomic. It an or something. Yeah, it's not a taxonomic term. And, you know, arthropod maybe would be quite encompassing of many things, but then you miss out the snails and the worms. So mini beast feels like a, a friendly way to be inclusive of all... All, all small, All invertebrates, yeah. But, but some of them aren't that mini, I guess, is no. then the caveat. So, But then if you, if you go into mini and maxi beasts, <laughs> it's like it's not... <laughs> loses its edge a little bit, so... Okay, let's let's go back to the very beginning. You you're from Norfolk originally. Yes. We're in your family home right now. Is this the house you grew up in? No, no. We moved around quite a lot as a kid, actually. And my parents are separated, so all over the place. But this is home now. <laughs> this is it. Okay, your father's coming through. <laughs> How many boxes are there? Six or seven? A, mi- a mini selection. A mini selection. <laughs> oh, you got a baby. Okay, so what are we looking at here? This is a leaf insect. It called that because it looks like a leaf. I uh, yes. Actually, I read a... Um, I got a bit obsessed for a while. Oh, he's beautiful. Yes. Um, I got a bit obsessed with reading about explorers because obviously nowadays it feels like you can't be a real explorer in the in the same way that people were, you know, hundreds of years ago. Um, and some explorer, I can't remember who it was, he was sitting under a tree and the leaves started moving and he thought he was hallucinating uh-huh. um, because the, the leaves just seemed like they'd come to life and it was because it was crawling with these creatures. And I mean... Oh, you've got a baby there. Yeah, how cute is that? That's awesome. I mean, this one's about half the size of my fist. Bright green. It, I mean, it just looks like a green leaf. It does look like a leaf with legs, doesn't so it? So what's, what's the taxonomic name of this guy? Um, I'm not... We've got a few different ones. Uh, that label just says leaf insect. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Where are these guys from? I think these ones are from Malaysia. I was just in Malaysia. Oh, wait. Um, I thought you were just in the Maldives. Well, I, I get, I get oh, around, you know. goodness. Now, I was filming a, a movie out in Malaysia over the summertime, and the cool. insect life was amazing. Like yes. Butterflies the size of dinner yeah, plates, yeah. Uh, praying yeah, mantises yeah. just dripping off the set everywhere you looked. It was absolutely Oh, wow. Lovely. I think this guy's lost a leg. Yeah, this one has as well. That's the thing. Uh, they look so much like leaves that they get confused and do eat bits of each other. <laughs> well, there you go. Carnivorous leaf dwelling. Ac- the accidental carnival. So your, your father now has a house full of insects. Did you grow no, up? No, the in accidental a- cannibal, not cannibal, carnival. That's what I meant <laughs> to say. The accidental cannibal. That's what we should call them. So did you grow up in a, in a house full of these? Not from the beginning. So when I was little, I really wanted a snake. I crazed and crazed and crazed my dad to have a pet snake. Mm-hmm. Um, at my mum's house, I had a dog and a cat and rabbits and guinea pigs at my mum's house. And there was no way I was going to get a snake at my mum's house. So mm-hmm. I crazed my dad to get me a snake. And he did the sensible thing. He said, you know, you need to learn the responsibility of having a snake before you can have one. Mm-hmm. So every weekend when I came to see him, we'd go to a reptile shop. I'd spend some time looking at the snakes and helping clean out their cages and learning how to look after them. And we did that for weeks and weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and while we were there, they also had these praying mantis in sure. cages. 
And my dad became really obsessed with those. And at this point we had no, I mean, so I don't know if you can see it, but that big black building out of there, yeah. that is full, full of, beasts. of mini beasts. So I eventually got my snake and he got a praying mantis. What? You look like you want to say something. No, I was, I was just going to say that my stepfather did a similar thing with me where I was doing my local historian Cub Scout badge. Yeah. And we had to do brass robbings of, of, of pill boxes, of, of post yeah. boxes. And he became obsessed with post boxes and ended up running running the Ringwood and Bournemouth Philatelic Society. Oh, wow. Um, I mean, he got post boxes and, and your father got like a, a, a well, huge shed, an industrial-sized insect emporium. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I I got a snake. So this is all your fault. Well, I mean, I suppose my interest in the first place must have come from him sure. because we used to go bug hunting all the time in the woods, and you know, I don't think I can I can fully claim it, but yeah, I. I think you should fully claim it. <laughs> this this is on the record now, so therefore it is all yours. Must be true. Yeah. So you so you had a uh, he had a praying mantis and you had a snake. Yes. So I guess you then had to get things to feed your snake. Yeah. So did you get live mice, crickets? No, I what think it's doing? I think it's illegal to feed um, to feed live prey to uh, even insects. I think you can probably feed insects, but we were feeding the snake mice, and I don't think I don't think I would have wanted to watch that anyway. What do you think this will sound like if I put this leaf insect on the microphone? I don't know. They're so light. I wonder if you'll even hear it. There's there's a insect on my microphone. <laughs> this, is, this is either going to be the best podcast I've done, or I'm just going to be so distracted by all the creatures that no one. Should we look at something else? Yeah, let, let's move on. I'm, I mean, I, I don't know how to get this insect off my microphone. Um, come here, buddy. <laughs> Never said that before. <laughs> okay, there he goes. I don't want to pull off another one of his legs. Not that I pulled the last <laughs> one. There you go. Here's his big one back. Um, so what what happened then? You've you you've got a snake. What snake was it? It was a rat snake, a grey rat snake. Called? Dax. Dax the rat snake. Yeah. What have we got here? Oh, mm. Okay, that box seems to be empty. It's it's not. It's uh, They like to go on the, on the ceiling. lid. Oh, that's a mantis. That is a mantis. doesn't look like a well mantis. Are you okay? Oh, oh yeah, yep, always that's alive. Fine. Hello. <laughs> this one might make noise. Oh, oh don't. where's it gone? Is this there on the side of the sofa? So this is a, I think this is a Sprodo mantis, or at least it looks like a Sprodo mantis. He's, or she, is it a she? The, the men are small, aren't they? Uh, that's what I've found my entire life. Um, <laughs> one, two, three, four. Yes, this is a female. So you can tell whether it's a male or a You're kind female. of the lines on its thorax, is that right? Uh, on its abdomen, abdomen, very close. So this has got one, two, three four, five, six, which means it's female, but also they are a bit chunkier mm-hmm. um, because they're usually full of eggs um, and the the males are usually sort of thinner, mm-hmm. more streamlined. Um, in some species, it's the males that sort of flutter about and fly from female to female, fertilising them. So they need to be sort of a bit more lightweight so they can fly about easily. Sure. So this is, do you want to hold her? Yeah, she's quite lively. I don't want her to get away. Come here, buddy. Oh, Ooh. there she goes. So they, they can fly as well, can't they? Yes, they can. These ones can fly, yeah. I there was one there was one hanging off a chandelier in a in a Malaysian townhouse that we were filming in. So still nobody saw it, but it was the same colour as the sort of the, the ironwork of it. And wow. they're so they're so still, aren't they? They're so still and they yeah. just the eyes make you think that they can see you, that they're sort of 
working you out more than any other insect yeah. i think they have that sort of yeah yeah yeah, human yeah definitely value any issue bugging you here anyway so yes so drax the snake and your dad's got starting to collect his insects so were did your friends come over as a as a kid and play with your animals i mean i grew up with very few pets in the house so yeah. i've always been envious of those that had lots I can't really remember. I suppose we must have done. I think that's also something that was really peculiar about my childhood. That So his insect collection very rapidly grew uh-huh. from one praying mantis to a shed full. Not that shed, a smaller shed, but still a shed full of weird and wonderful creatures. Did you move into this new house in part because he needed more space for his <laughs> insect collection? Probably, yeah. <laughs> um, actually, no, they started in my bedroom. So I had the... The snake, which grew to multiple snakes and lizards and the insects, they were all in my bedroom. Mm-hmm. And that was that was just normal for me. So when people talk to me about it now, because I was around them for such a, from such a small age, it's hard for me to realise that it's even weird. Sure. Um, but yeah, it soon grew and now it's, and it's all of that. And soon dad's opening a, uh, a zoo... I read about that on Twitter. Yes. Where's that? Is that going to be nearby? Yes, near here, yeah. Amazing. How's that coming along? It's good. I mean, lots of planning. Um, But it's going well, I think. Are Are there strange regulations about having potentially harmful insects? Yes. En masse? Uh, Yeah, I think... I mean, there's the dangerous wild animals license. I don't know if he needs that for any of his things, though. I'm not really sure how it works with... Because nothing is really that dangerous that he has. I mean, some of the things... Like, this would give you a nasty bite. It's probably like... What is that? Uh, this is a nephila spider. Golden orb weaver. They make these amazing sheds. So he has these just free-ranging out there um, in the shed. And they make these six-foot incredible golden webs. Which Can we have a look at that later? Yeah, if you're not... Too squeamish, yeah, because they are. I mean, they're all over the place. But... I, 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 in theory, let's say yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, sure. Yeah, so I mean, does he have? I mean, this is, does he have anti venom nearby? This isn't me asking about potentially going in there, but <laughs> does one need anti venom? Um, no, one... no, you just get a bit of a sore hand. I was reading. I don't think he's ever been bitten by anything. I was reading. Um, there's a book by Douglas Adam and Mark Carbadine. Um, last chance to see exactly yeah um and there's the bit about the komodo dragons and how there are more poisonous snakes on komodo than anything else and they were talking to an australian snake expert about it and the only advice he gives them is just don't get bitten (laughs) i I can tell you all about that yeah but just don't do it sound advice it's it's really bad (laughs) (laughs) Um, i'm gonna give you this praying mantis back um because it's distracting me from the vital job of asking you impressive questions the thing is if you're respectful there isn't any reason why you should get bitten. That's And I I think that is much more sensible advice than at first it may seem because if you treat these creatures with respect and don't give them reason to bite you, most of them are not biting you for the for the sake of it. No, They're, it's defence or yeah, fear or... Yeah, it's either because they want to eat you and there's very few venomous creatures that are actually going to want to, if any venomous creatures are actually going to... Eat a human. Eat a human. So they're they're doing it because they're scared or because, yeah, probably only because they're scared. We should probably at this point dispel uh, the truth about venomous and poisonous. Venomous is when something 
bites you? When it's injected. And poisonous is if you bite it. <laughs> no, well, poisonous is if you ingest it. Sure. So venomous is something that's injected. So um, a bite that's injected through fangs or, or a stinger, um, a stinger or... or yeah, something like that. Um, or barbs even, like venomous barbs on a sea anemone or something like that. Sure. Um, and poisonous is if you ingest it. So, yeah, a lot of them are actually both. So, um, particularly like the black and yellow and red coloured things, um, they usually are either advertising that they're poisonous or pretending to be poisonous. So the venomous stuff that they inject, is that the same element that is poisonous that you consume, or do they have other parts of them that are poisonous, therefore? Both, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Just keep away, then? Yes. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I'm just going to keep staring at that tarantula and pretend he's not this there. This one. That was in the do not open I mean, box, I actually don't... Need, I think I can open it, I just can't hold it. Oh, maybe Okay, not. yeah, maybe not. He's very lively. <laughs> and you've put him down near the macaroons. It's going to drive him mad. Sorry. Anyone who can hear that noise, that's a that's quite a large tarantula. People were squirmish when it was the taxidermy episode. Really? Um, I'm pretty certain that, that pre-skinned things aren't going to be that harmful. I think the, the, the spider episode might push other people over the edge. <laughs> so you've got a snake, and I'm going to keep coming back to this every, every five minutes ago. So we're still, we're at school, we're at primary school. So you, you grew up around, increasingly around animals. Yes. Yeah, all um, animals. Is that what is? Is that a scorpion? Uh, it's a whip scorpion, um, which is not actually related to. A, well, it is closely related to a scorpion, in as much as a scorpion's related to a spider. It's an arachnid. Sure. Um, these things here. So it has, like all arachnids, eight legs. Uh-huh. Uh, these long things here are legs. They're modified legs for sensing. And they're called its whips. That's why it's called a whip scorpion. There's another species, which I really hoped Dad was going to have, but he said he hasn't got any at the moment, um, where these are really elongated uh-huh. and they're a cave species. So they can't they can't really see. Sure. Um, and where they live is really dark, but they find their way about by using these modified legs, which are whips, um, what, to build up a picture of their environment. What is it about... I mean, I always think of insects and I think of the, the moth that Darwin hypothesized mm-hmm. um, the, with the extra long proboscis so it yeah. could get the nectar out of the, yeah, yeah. the plant. There's something always about insects where you can much more visibly locate the evolutionary trajectory of why the location, why the thing. So obviously with the cave dwelling. Sure, um, yeah. What yeah, is it and about I suppose, insects? I think because they're not constrained by a skeleton inside their body, there's a lot more scope for extremes Mm -hmm. and because they're small there's a lot more scope for extremes as well so they don't have to um they're just their bodies are much less complicated so they can breathe through holes in the side of their body so if they become really long if we became you know super long our lungs probably wouldn't be able to push oxygen Mm -hmm. our heart wouldn't be able to Anyway, we wouldn't be able yeah. to well, work there's, there's in things like extreme body the, the giraffe, how that evolved, the vocal yeah. cord got trapped around the aorta or something, and which is why they can't yeah, really make there was, a noise. Um, yeah, there's something, a nerve that got caught around something a loop like of their aorta, and so it has this really super ridiculously long... That's yeah. it. You should know that you're the vet, so... <laughs> yeah, I can't actually remember the specifics, but I vaguely know that. I don't deal with a lot of giraffes, actually. Really? No, there aren't many giraffes in Norfolk? No. Um, so anyway, this guy also has this tail here, mm-hmm. um, 
so in the scorpions, that would be where the stinger is. Sure. In this guy, he has a tail for spraying acid, which smells a lot like vinegar, which is where they get the name vinegaroon. There you go. Um, and that's their defense. So they can move this all over. He can, he could fire so, that. So if you play with me. it now, you're probably going to get covered in vinegar like acid. Yes. Like acid. Yeah. Great. I wouldn't fiddle with that if I were you, though. No. I think we'll just put him back. <laughs> so that, that, that's the Obsithecanthus Madagascar. It's from Madagascar, then, yeah? Originally. I wonder if this box this was. Box because I don't think that's what that's called. Okie dokie. Not very good at Latin names. There's so many. He has about, well, he has thousands of different species in there, and I already have enough drug names to remember being a, a vet. Being a vet. Don't, you, don't, you don't need all the names. <laughs> I don't need all the Latin names. As the well. uh, I was down in Dorset talking to a, a fossil collector and paleontologist, and he's self-taught. He's a plumber by trade, and the whole taxonomy, the whole categorization stuff, is stuff that he has no time for whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, there's a place for. I can smell it. Can you smell it? it oh yeah! Like wow. Salt and vinegar crisps. That's really strong. Yeah. That, uh, that's the vinegar smell coming from there. For those, for the the audio visual <laughs> going on, my descriptive powers are, are are lacking. I fear. Um. So yeah. So was going to university to become a vet always what was going to happen then? Do you think? No. Was- so I did a zoology degree first. Um. I was originally going to go and do English because. <laughs> That's what I was really good at at school. That's what I really enjoyed. I was a an avid reader, bookworm. I did sciences and English uh, for my A-levels. And I just thought I was going to go and do English because that's what my teachers expected me to do or sure. were encouraging me to do. So I did all my application for English. And then like a careers advisor said to me, so what are you going to do with English afterwards? And I was like, I don't know. I mean, I want to write a novel. And they were like, but you don't need an English degree to write a novel. And then... Do you still want to write a novel? I'm writing it currently. I mean, I have been for 10 years. So that's not not like some great achievement. But anyway, uh, he said, what do you love? And I said, well, I love books and I love animals. And he said, well, why don't you study animals? And it hadn't really occurred to me that I could ever make a job out of loving animals. And mm. so I hadn't really thought about it. And he's like, what about zoology? That's, you know, it's like biology, but it's just the cool animal stuff. Yeah. And so I ended up getting a place at uni through clearing. Didn't even go to my English interviews. Okay. And Where were, which university was this? The only ones that I was thinking about was UCL and Cambridge. And I didn't go to my interviews for either of those. But I called up UCL and because I think they'd offered me a place even though I hadn't gone to my interview. Um, And I called them and I said, I don't really want to do English anymore. Can I switch to zoology? Sure. And they said, no, you can't possibly (laughs) do that. So I just went to the zoology department there and and spoke to some people. Um, So my dad's got a garage full of insects, let me in. Essentially. (laughs) Yeah. And actually the guy who I went and spoke to, I can't even remember who it was now, which is such a shame, but... Um, he had this office full of dead insects. And I went in and I talked to him. And we had live versions of many of them. And um, we went in and had this lovely conversation about mini beasts and insects. And he was like, well, I, I, but I can't offer you a place because it's not how it works. Sure. 
but there are some in clearing. So if you if you go they'll, through clearing, I'm sure we'll find a space for you. So UCL also owns the Grant Zoology Museum, yes, doesn't it? Yes. So I'm hopefully talking to Tanis Davidson, who runs as the current cool. curator of it, to talk yeah. to her about that. For anyone who doesn't know the Grant Zoology Museum, it's brilliant because you're greeted by a jar of moles <laughs> when you walk in, which is literally... It reminded me of one of those things you see at a fun fair, like guess the number of sausages in this yeah. bag. Yeah, I, there's I, some odd stuff. Really? Odd. Did you spend yeah. a lot of time in there? Yeah, so uh, one of the prog- projects that we had uh, during my zoology degree was they gave each of us a specimen from that museum mm-hmm. um, with no information and we had to go away and, and work out what it was. What did you get? Um, I had an ostrich femur. <laughs> <laughs> was yeah, it was it was it was really difficult, but it was a really fun project. Um, so you, some I, of them were so obvious, though. Like someone got, I think, a hand of an eye eye, which I just looked at and I was like, like well, that's an eye eye." And I had this bone that was like, <laughs> "I have no idea what this is." If memory serves, they accidentally discovered they had a uh, a leg bone of a, I can't remember what it was, a quagga or a quagga? It was like a zebra. Oh, did like, they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they didn't realise they had it. And then someone was doing some research there and went, no, that's a really rare bone. Oh, wow. I'd not heard that story. Um, I think it's true. I might have dreamt it. I'll, I'll, I'll do some research. <laughs> Good story anyway. I'm pretty certain that's true. But I, I've always loved that. But loads of museums have sort of got their collections over time from private collectors who just yeah. didn't know what to do with it. So the Natural History Museum is just full of yeah. people who, when they've died or when their wife got angry, have ended up giving their entire collection to yeah. the Natural History Museum. And so I imagine there's still people there categorising everything that they've got oh, in those yeah. endless storerooms. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so is that a three-year course, zoology, at UCL? Yes, it was. Um, and was it mostly on campus or were you off doing site-specific fun things? Um, it was actually a lot more lab and lecture-based than I anticipated. Obviously, because of my roots into it, I didn't really... I, I was so concerned about getting a place at university at all. I didn't really look into the different courses. Um, I just said, well, I've already got a place at UCL for English. Let me just try and switch it. I mean, that sounds like every single 18-year-old I've ever met, including myself. Like, <laughs> I don't know what university is. I think I'm supposed to go. Yeah. What do you do? Where's the bar? Great. Yeah. Moving on. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a lot to be said for um, going to university later, actually. Um, that's something I would... I would be really pro if more people did it because you don't know what you're doing. No. I certainly didn't know. Quite weirdly, quite a lot of actors do that. Really? Um, mostly because uh, acting doesn't necessarily work out for them and so they retrain later in life. Sure, yeah. Um, and it's only at that point that you realise the certain core skill sets that acting has given you, which might be yeah. confidence or public speaking yeah, or yeah. improvisation. And yeah. you know, they're pretty transferable, I think. They yeah, definitely. etc. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, I did my zoology degree and then I thought I wanted to make films about, um, about conservation. And so I tried to work in TV for a bit, but people kept telling me that, uh, conservation films would switch off TV. Mm-hmm. Um, which couldn't be, you couldn't be less the case now with things like yes, Blue Planet exactly. 2. And... and in this environment, you know, I, I probably would have gone down that route and I'd probably work, be working in TV now in a different capacity to, to the way I sometimes am. Um, but at that point I was saying, you know, I want to make conservation films. The The world is really struggling and we need to spread the message so people make a change. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it was just 
knows from everyone that I spoke to. And I didn't want to be in it to be glorifying the natural world if I wasn't doing something to help it as well. So then I decided I wanted to be a gorilla vet. <laughs> well, actually, no, I decided I wanted to work with gorillas. Um, so, so there was, when I was at university, towards the end of my three-year degree, I, I applied to be a spy for MI5. And right. it was, I think if MI5 had taken my application form seriously, they would have cross-referenced it with my recent purchases and seen I bought all the recent box sets of spooks and gone, that's not... So what was it? Was it, was the gorilla vet coming out of having watched Gorillas in the Mist or was it, was um, there something about your zoology degree that made you go, so, you know what, I want apes, I want yeah, big apes? Before my zoology degree, I, I did a gap year. Oh, gap year. And uh, one of the things that I did in my gap year... I was mainly teaching English in South America, um, but during my holidays, I went and worked in a monkey sanctuary in Bolivia Wow! Um, and loved working with monkeys. And then during my zoology degree, I wanted to, well, I also did another project on gibbons in Thailand. Um, and then I did my dissertation on the gorillas at London Zoo. Um, I just, I love primates and I was doing more and more work with primates uh, and after doing this dissertation on gorillas I just realized they were the creme de la creme of the mm-hmm. primate world for me and obviously I loved gorillas in the mist also there you go and <laughs> um, so I'd gradually built up some contacts in the primate world I'd become part of the primate society of Great Britain and gone to lots of their conferences and a few people had said to me we really need gorilla vets how do you feel about going back to uni for another five years and uh, training to be a vet? And I'd had a great time at uni. I loved learning. When I was much younger, one of my sort of ideas had been being a vet, but then I'd gone to a vet practice and I'd found it a bit boring doing vaccinations every day. It was quite repetitive. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, this is an ideal way to... To, to get put... the best bits of being a vet. Exactly, yeah. yeah. I'll be a gorilla, a gorilla vet. Specialist. Not... Not quite there yet. <laughs> Couldn't really be further from being a gorilla vet. One, right of, one of the things I've always loved about vets is that it's, it takes you longer to qualify as a vet than it does as a human doctor. Yeah. Which I, I've always thought was brilliant. For anyone who doesn't respect animals, that's exactly what makes them better. But also, um, if there's an emergency, a vet is allowed to treat a human. There you go. But a human is not, uh, like a doctor is not allowed to treat an animal. Because we have to learn about all the different creatures not mm. just you know we should theoretically be able to treat anything so you should be able to tell the difference between an abdomen and a thorax which i can't <laughs> do as a layman yeah um so was it around then you got the jane goodall leadership award oh that was also when i was doing my zoology degree um i set up this program so they have the jane goodall institute have a program called roots and shoots which is all about teaching children about the environment and about animals and and also a bit about people and and how we can live sort of in harmony with the natural world Um, and I set up a program whereby university students would create sessions and go into local schools so obviously I was at UCL in London so we'd go to schools quite often underprivileged schools in London um, and teach these sessions about the roots and shoots things Mm -hmm. and just sort of spread the the message that the jane goodall institute were were trying to to to, push at that point yeah 
Yeah. I mean, is this the first point in your career where you start to lean into children, to education, to... Because you look at a lot of what you're doing now, whether it's directly intentional or whether it's kismet, seems to be about inspiring children, about getting them involved in climate, environment. Yeah, um, I've always loved kids. I think I am a big kid myself. I Well, in my gap year, I was teaching English to young children. Um, so I suppose I, you know, <laughs> when I was going through this thing of, am I going to be doing English or zoology or I also maybe wanted to be a teacher Mm -hmm. so yeah I've always loved kids and I think it wasn't something I intentionally fell into teaching kids about the environment but it was something I was just naturally doing anyway sure um you were good at it and you enjoyed it and you didn't need to think about it I suppose so yeah and it just seemed obvious that they were the ones who were they were easier to change. Mm-hmm. Um, grown-ups wouldn't listen. They already had their their views formed. Um, they didn't want to change their behaviour. They had their routines. But kids were sponges, and you could tell them you could tell them about what was happening to the natural world, and they'd be horrified. Mm-hmm. Whereas you'd tell grown-ups, and they'd sort of say, "Oh, that's awful. Let's not think about it." Yeah. So you're doing your five-year vet course. Yeah. During that, are you thinking about other things on the side or are you just busy learning about thoraxes? <laughs> I didn't really do any learning about thoraxes. <laughs> just, just gorillas. I don't care about looking after the dogs and the cats and the guinea pigs. Just give me a gorilla. Um, so actually during my first year at uni... I was where, where is this? Sorry, uh, Nottingham. Nottingham. I was contacted by some people that I'd met between my zoology degree and my vet degree whilst I was trying to maybe work in TV. And I'd obviously got this reputation during that year as the bug girl, (laughs) Um, because I'd been on various shows as an animal handler. Um, I guess I was interested in bugs. I was knowledgeable about them. I was not fearful of them. Uh And I would often just turn up with... Bugs. Quite like I have today, just boxes of bugs. Um, I mean, it is that show and tell thing. There have been a few people I've spoken to on this podcast already who vividly remember a day at school where somebody had a box of something yeah. like it. I yeah. can't remember who it was, but they were saying how they were met. every Just a school in Birmingham, they were brought a fun thing every month. And yeah. she was like, I know it's boring this month. And would they be waiting for the weeks to count down to the next yeah. sort of show and tell day? Yeah. So I I had this reputation as Jess the Bug Girl. And then it turned out they were looking for a presenter for it. So the CBB show was conceived before, b- before me. Okay. Um, and they were looking for specifically a girl um, to present it. And That they, must have felt quite good from where you were before, feeling like it was a male-dominated industry, to then knowing that at least on the surface it was seemed that the world was slightly changing a bit. Yeah, I guess I've never thought about that before. But, but yeah, I mean... I think it was it was more for the viewing numbers to make sure if they made a bug show with a man, it wasn't cutting out all the girls. Sure. Um, but yeah, I suppose that was really good. And they were, because of the way they wanted to film it, they were looking for someone who loved bugs rather than a presenter mm-hmm. um, because we were going to be finding insects or mini beasts, whatever. And the presenter would need to know what was going on to be able to sort of just ad lib it. And so apparently a few people, I think two people who I'd met during my time working in TV had said, oh, well, why don't you speak to Jess the bug girl? (laughs) (laughs) 
And so I got these random phone calls um, and they said, what do you think about making an audition video? Which it was kind of exciting, but I never thought it was actually going to happen. Sure. And actually I made the audition video and sent it and the producer and the production company never received it. And so that could easily have been the end. Uh-huh. But the people who had been sort of championing me had been so enthusiastic, they actually chased me. Where's the bug lady going? Where's the bug lady's video? Sounds like you already had the job. Well, what was the, What was your audition tape? Were um, you in the garage? Were you out there going, oh, and over here we have... I, a... No, I was sat in a field with my little cousin and we found some little UK millipedes. Oh, and we've not... That's a great segue into this. Um, It was with this... That's not even planned, but it was what with these giant millipedes. Wow. So we... Yeah, we found some little millipedes, UK ones, and then we talked about these big ones as well. I mean, they're huge. They look like... They're big, aren't they? They look like gap year bangles. (laughs) Yeah, they're pretty cool. They look quite sleepy. They look all it's quite sort of docile, maybe a little right? bit cold in here because obviously the shed is boiling hot. Sure, it's sure. To be so they're all like up. Is that three or four in there? Four. One, two, three, four. Yeah. It's a beautiful colour, isn't it? Yeah, the colours in the mini beast world are just unreal. Mm-hmm. Some of them. I've just come back from the diving holiday, and the colours underwater are equally as stunning. And you just feel like the surface mammals, at least, have really sort of dropped, let their game drop a bit. <laughs> Yeah, but I guess um, camouflage is the name of the game up here, isn't mm-hmm. it? So unless you're something advertising that you're poisonous or venomous, there's not really... I love the ripple of their legs. I know, yeah. As you see it sort you of go it. along. I'm, I'm not going to hold. I won't <laughs> lie. I There's oh. something about all those little feet that I just don't want near me. <laughs> Fair enough. They feel quite nice. All right, go on then. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, that's nicer than they look. They've got a good grip. I mean, yeah, they've got really loads of strong. feet. So this species is arboreal. They can climb trees. Sure. So they, they need to be able to hold on really, really hard. It feels, it feels like they're sucking, you know? It feels like yeah, yeah, the I way that they're mean, gripping. Yeah. My instant aversion was this sort of seem all slithery and weird. But the odd thing is I really like snakes. Right. I've always liked snakes. Yeah. But insects have always been a little bit... Oh, no, he's nice, isn't he? He's lovely. I'm probably insulting her. He's probably a girl. How do you tell the gender of a millipede? It's quite tricky. There's um, just a missing pair of legs on one of the segments, and I can't remember which segment it is, but I, I'm not an expert. On millipedes. Millipede sexing, anyway. <laughs> Who is the expert on millipede sexing? My dad would be able to tell you. Legend. Um, So where are we? So you're making mini beasts. You've made how many episodes of that now? Twenty. Twenty. Are you going to make more? I don't really know. I think it was rather than a lot of stuff that's made by CBBS, which is made by CBBS. It was made by another production company. Okay. And I think it seemed to be really well received, and parents seemed to love it. Mm. Um, Well, people I've spoken to about it who have kids. Loved it. Yeah. So alongside the TV show, there was a whole load of books that went along with it as well. Yeah, which, I mean, for me, that was that was the most incredible thing about the whole experience. Well, for somebody who wanted to be a novelist in the very sure, early days. Sure, yeah. So 
I didn't even go to a publisher. An agent came to me and said, I mean, in the beginning, it was basically your face is on TV. If we put your face on a book, it'll sell. Which, you know, it was my route into writing. So I can't knock it. Um, And then I think my agent discovered I maybe actually could write. Hmm. And it's the thing I love most now is writing the books. books. Well, you, there are about 10 or 12 of them now or so. Something like that, yeah. And the one I've, I've been reading, this is one of my new favourite books. I was, I was reading it in the pub last night, <laughs> as you do. I was sitting there wondering whether it was aimed at 35-year-old beer drinkers. But it, How to Help a Hedgehog and Protect a Polar Bear is brilliant because it reminded me of those David Bellamy I Spy books that I used to get as a kid to yeah, help identify yeah, things yeah. in the garden. So half the yeah. book is identification and yeah. the other half of it is how you as as a child as an adult can help make the world a better place and the advice is everything from uh cutting a hole for hedgehogs in your fence or uh volunteering in your local environment talking about things on social media not buying things with palm oil and it's looking at helping millipedes like this guy um hedgehogs but you it's when you suddenly drop in the amazonian river dolphin and how you can help with him yeah and that's you know that's a millipede down there we go that's a, a much harder thing to explain to a child is that things you do in your day-to-day life can affect the polar bears mm-hmm. and the... things you can't necessarily see. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's what's so good about the book is it's the way it starts and what it, like it, it sort of opens up the further yeah. you go into it. Yeah, it's, yeah, definitely. It's, I'm, this isn't hyperbole, and I'm not blowing smoke. Like <laughs> it's. I think it's really genuinely well constructed. It's you never feel like you're getting too much information and it certainly doesn't get sanctimonious. And the illustration that Angela's done is is incredible. Yeah, it's gorgeous. It's it's a really beautiful book. Oh, thank you. Um yeah, it's it's absolutely stunning. So I think you should be very pleased. Angela, the illustrator, is um she's Kiwi, she lives in New Zealand. Uh-huh. Um and so a lot of the environments in there that are the UK specific ones, like the Scottish Highlands and um, I can't remember what the other one was, but there were a few that were very UK specific environments mm. and she'd never seen them. <laughs> so she was drawing these illustrations from like Google images. And I think she's done an absolutely amazing job. That's hilarious. So yeah. she's never been to England? She has been to England, but not, not to those to, specific. Yeah, yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah. I mean, there's everything in here. I mean, like it's... It, it, we sort of end up in the Amazon, I think, at one stage, and then you've you've got Arctic tundra, the Sahara. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. I I found it fascinating, useful as a thirty five year old, and I'm there going, I need to buy it for more people. <laughs> My nephew's nine, I reckon he's probably just about right for it. I guess. Yeah. My I niece mean, is suddenly like at a six. I think it's a family book, so mm. there should be something in there for everyone. There's a um, wonderful book that's doing the round at the moment called The Lost Words. Yes. Which again is is a reactive piece to a generation that is being ignored from environmental and yeah. natural history debate. Yeah. Which is beautiful. Yeah, it's gorgeous. I think every single young person I meet is now going to get a copy of both of them. <laughs> oh no. So everybody who comes on the podcast gets asked three questions. Oh no. Yeah, it's the hot seat round. Uh the first question is if you could go for a walk anywhere in the world right now, where would it be? Probably Patagonia. I went there when I lived in South America and I've not been back since and I, I'm desperate to go back there. Um, and I have a baby and I think it would probably be a decent place to take her. It wouldn't be, it's not a tropical place that's going to have lots of horrible diseases that she could get. 
Um, well, they didn't you get intestinal worms, I read, when you were... Oh, everywhere I go, I get something. <laughs> Literally, every time I go away travelling, I get some kind of weird... I read dengue fever at Yeah, some dengue point. fever, I've had... Hookworms. Hook, yeah, yeah. I mean, your, your CV reads more as a sort of tropical diseases menu as opposed to... <laughs> the worst, do you know what the worst one was? I once... Worst as in disappointment. Because I, when I was working at that monkey sanctuary in Bolivia... I got a bot fly in my hand and I knew that I had a bot fly and I was desperately excited waiting for it to hatch and every day I would look at it and it was getting bigger and bigger and I could see it like moving under the skin. Anyway, eventually I was like, what's going to come out? What's going to come out? And one, one morning I woke up and there was just a hole and it had gone overnight and I never got to see it and I was so, so disappointed. There's, there's an anecdote I told on this podcast a while back about having a pet dead mole, um, which didn't people thought I was strange. I think that story that you just shared might have a similar response to people. <laughs> so Patagonia with your child. That yes. sounds like a wonderful adventure. Yeah. Anywhere particular in Patagonia? Um, somewhere you've been, somewhere you want yeah, to go? Yeah, probably Torre del Paine, which is a um, national park with these beautiful rock formations. Yeah. Sounds amazing. Yeah. Um, second question. Um, should we colonise the moon? No. Just no? I think we've done enough damage here already. I think we should just leave extraterrestrial bodies as they are. In which case, should we colonise the seas? Until we can learn to do it in a sustainable, environment-friendly way, we shouldn't be colonising anywhere. Uh, and final question. If you could bring any animal back from extinction, Ooh. what would it be? Oh, man, that is... Tricky. I mean, there are just too many. Mm-hmm. You're talking about millions of years of life. I think it would have to be something really different to anything that currently exists. There was a huge pterosaur called... Oh, I've only ever read it. I don't know how you pronounce it. Quetzalcoatlus, it might be called. Mm-hmm. I think that would be... Amazing. I mean, we don't know if it could fly, obviously, because sure. we only have bones and stuff. But it was mammoth. And to have seen that flying through the air... talking a wingspan of 10, 20 metres bigger? Google? Google. Well, we'll, add it. we'll put it to the website. Like, bigger than a giraffe mm-hmm. flying through oh, the wow. air. Yeah. It, the, the, the loss of giant birds is something... I first sort of got a bit obsessed with when I went to New Zealand and realised yeah. that all of these huge birds, yeah, yeah, yeah. whether they be the massive eagles or the moa, yeah. all just disappeared as soon as yeah. sort of humans got involved. And, and it's really sad because yeah. whenever you see it... I, I did a job where originally there was supposed to be a huge jousting scene right. and I had it written in my contract that yeah. I'd do all my own jousting. And then due to budgetary constraints, uh, they cut the jousting scene and I was livid. Um, so I had a bit of a strop. And I went to the producer and said, it's all right. What are you going to replace it with? And they said, we're going to replace it with a falconry scene. I said, okay, I want a golden eagle. And walked away. And true to her word, Gina Cronk got me a golden eagle. Oh. And this, this eagle had a wingspan of about three meters. Wow. And like when it's stretched out and it's standing on your arm, it weighs quite a lot. And it's, it beaks right at eye level and you think you're going to lose the jelly yeah. of your eye. But the wingspan Yeah, was they're amazing, aren't they? When we were in New Zealand last year, um, we went and saw albatrosses I don't know if you did mm-hmm. that when you were there and that was incredible I 
they are enormous. I don't, I mean, I knew they were big, but. Albatrosses and pelicans make me think dinosaurs are still around. Well, they, yeah. yeah. I mean, they are. I mean, yeah. that's the. So, so to finish, we should have finished on that question. But the one thing I do want to finish on is one thing we haven't talked about is the recent report about insects dying out in the. Yeah, I mean, could you just tell me a little bit about that, uh, rather than me paraphrasing figures out of my head? Oh, I can't remember the figures. <laughs> <laughs> but it was terrifying. I've spoken about it to quite a lot of people lately, and it's just something like forty percent in the last two years alone, or something ridiculous. Yeah, and the projections of fifty percent in the next. I can't remember what the figures are, but it's the thing is recently I've read a lot of other reports sort of squashing that one. And it's hard to know what to believe, isn't it? Because you read all these different reports, but either way, what we're doing is decimating the environment and making it unlivable for insects and unlivable for basically everyone that's not a human. Um, And the plastic in the sea, like it just everywhere. It seems all of these things that we've known about for years and years and years, everyone seems to be suddenly aware of. And But there's still not enough fear. There's not enough panic. Do you ever... I mean, the thing, like, there are people championing lions and tigers and elephants yeah. and rhinos because they're big, they're present, yeah. and they're cute-looking, some yeah. of them, especially when they're little. Yeah. Do we need a bug lady to champion in the insect species? I mean, I guess well, that's what I've been trying to do on some small level. Mm-hmm. The thing is, if the... If the bugs go, we go. Yeah. So <laughs> that kind of speaks for itself. I mean, it's almost like we deserve it. It might be the best thing for the planet. <laughs> Amazing. Wonderful. Well, let's leave it at that. If people want to know more about you, you have a website, you have a Twitter feed. Your website is... JessFrench.co.uk. Perfect. And you've got a Twitter feed, which is... At zoologist underscore Jess. And your dad has an Instagram and Twitter feed if they want to find out more about his insect zoo. Yes, which is, I think, at bugs with a Z underscore UK. Perfect. Wonderful. Thank you very much for talking to me. I love that. I'll give you a few seconds to find out the wingspan of that thing before I turn off the microphones. We'll play some sort of elevator lift music at this point. Did you say 10 metres? Yeah. Well, my understanding of ancient pterosaurs is <laughs> is substantial um, for, for an actor as well. It's it's pretty impressive. Wonderful, Jess. You've been a wonderful guest. Thank you very, very, very much indeed. Thanks for having me. And humongous thank you to Jess for letting me and my microphone into her family home to record this interview. And a special thanks go to her father's venomous wee beasties for not taking chunks out of me. Please head across to my blog at treesacrowd.fm for further info on the animals handled in this episode. Our next two episodes form a very special, exciting two-part interview, but you'll have to wait a fortnight to find out with whom. Until then, thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to tell your friends... And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Oh, 